God's Word has been read to us from the Old Testament, an Old Testament lesson, and then from a Psalm lesson, and then a New Testament lesson, and now finally a Gospel lesson. The Gospel as found in Matthew chapter 3, the first 12 verses. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you, that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into his barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. Let me take a minute and explain why such a different approach to reading the scripture tonight. A couple weeks ago, I asked Pastor Greg if I could do this. And as I've been thinking about, well, why am I doing it this way? I've come up with three reasons to share with you. First has to do with my own religious background. I grew up a Reformed Presbyterian, which I would describe as the right end or the right wing of the Reformed world. And part of that meant no Advent, no Christmas, no Easter, no Good Friday, no Pentecost, no religious holiday of any kind except the weekly Sabbath. I understand the reasoning of that. I'm obviously not in that group any longer. So one reason I wanted to try this tonight with the four scripture lessons is it gives me a taste of something way outside of my first 40 years of life. 
Second reason is that what we have just done is we have read the four lessons that go with year A out of the three-year cycle of the common lectionary. And if you look back at me with a blank face, that's okay. But if you had been at the Episcopal Church this morning, you would have read these four. If you had been at any of the Lutheran churches in town, you would have read these four passages. Probably if you'd been in a Methodist church in town today, you would have read these four passages. If you had been at a Roman Catholic parish this morning, you would have read four similar passages because their three-year cycle is a little bit different than the ones that most Protestant churches use. Back almost 30 years, when I became Christian Reformed and was still trying to understand what is this thing that God has dropped me into, I heard someone say, and I'm wondering, you know, where does the Christian Reformed Church fit in the big picture? Whoever it was said, well, you have to understand, the Christian Reformed Church has one foot in the evangelical world and one foot in the mainline Protestant world. And I've thought about that often for the last 30 years. I usually hear about the evangelical side. Tonight, I want to take you to the mainline Protestant. The older Protestant churches in this country would have worked with these four passages today. Third reason. Many of you have grown up and have heard how for hundreds of years, the practice in a good chunk of Protestant churches has been that every Sunday there will be a message from the Heidelberg Catechism. And I'm sure that the primary purpose for doing that was to make sure that there was a, a comprehensive study of Christian things every year. I think the lectionary was intended to do the same thing. In a three-year cycle, to keep pastors from riding their hobby horses and to force them to cover, in a fairly comprehensive way, the scriptures every three years. So... That's what we're doing tonight. Now, then the next question, and the question that faces every preacher who works with the lectionary is, how do they connect to one another? What's the relationship? And some Sundays, frankly, it's really hard to figure it out. Tonight, I think not so difficult. Isaiah that we read first, Isaiah pictures the ideal king coming from the family of David. And this king is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to rule justly. There's going to be perfect peace with this king. And the whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. When that ideal king comes, well, when he comes, he never came during the Old Testament period. That was the problem. They kept waiting. He never showed up. And so the Jews were always looking forward to something better. When Messiah comes, he will be the perfect king we're looking for. So the Isaiah passage was anticipating the advent of our Lord. Now the Romans passage, the New Testament passage, quotes the Old Testament text. And it emphasizes the hope that we have as we focus on Christ. So the Old Testament passage given to give us hope, written for that purpose, Messiah is going to come, and then the scriptures, even the Gentiles can have hope. 
And the pattern throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament as well, that pattern is one of God acting so that the people of God can have hope. So life looks back. It looks back at what God has done down through the generations. And then it looks forward with hope for the future. So the Romans passage concludes with this marvelous prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. A lot of words there that we are used to hearing during the Advent season. Then the gospel lesson. Tonight, the Matthew 3 lesson helps us to see that this Advent that we're talking about this month is a lot broader than just the birth of Jesus. Certainly it centers in that, but it's broader than that. And so it tells us about John the Baptist as one who is pointing toward the ministry of Jesus, not pointing toward his own ministry, and not pointing even toward the birth of Jesus, so much as the ministry of Jesus that's some 30 years ahead. So by the time you've read the four lessons, we ought to get the idea that the advent that we're focusing on in this month is concerned with the total coming of the Son of God in the flesh. The birth, yes, but so much more of why he has come. Now, the emphasis in the particular passage tonight is on preparation. That's what John's all about, isn't it? Preparing. And so, you know, if we have a theme tonight, it's prepare. John does it by talking primarily about two things or telling us two things we need to do. He's telling us to repent. That's the obvious theme in here. And he's telling us at the end of the passage to bear fruit. So, gonna, the two hooks for tonight, repent and bear fruit. How does this fit with Isaiah? I want to take another shot at it. And if you choose, you can open your Bibles and go back to Isaiah about chapter 36. I'm going to spend a few minutes on Isaiah 36, 37, 38, 39. You know, much of Isaiah's prophetic kind of literature, but you have some historical sections. And at 36, you get into a historical section. In this particular chapter, it's all about a king named Sennacherib, who was from Assyria. A little bit later, we're going to hear about Babylonia. And, you know, now we're talking about the territory of Iran and Iraq. Interesting that the news for the last couple of weeks has been a focus on our negotiating with Iran about nuclear things. Chapter 36 is a negotiation, strange negotiation, between the king of Assyria and Hezekiah, the king of the Jewish folks. Here, here's... here's Here's where we're going to come out to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is really starting back here. And in 36, Sennacherib is sending his envoys 
to Hezekiah, and he's giving him all kinds of warnings and making fun of him in, in terrible ways. And you think, well, this is not good at all. And the representatives of Hezekiah certainly don't like what they're hearing, and they're saying, don't say this publicly. Keep this quiet if you have to talk about this. But the, the basic message is that Assyria is going to get rid of those Jewish folks. They're going to disappear. In the next chapter, in 37, Hezekiah tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth. He, he tries to address this. He calls for distress. He calls for you know, repentance and mourning and all that kind of stuff. And Isaiah gets involved. And near the end of the uh, middle of the chapter, Hezekiah prays very, you know, God, you've got to help us here in the midst of all this stuff from these Assyrians. And then you have a long prophecy by Isaiah, which he basically says, Sennacherib's going to lose. He's going to fall. It's going to be okay. And at the end of the chapter 37, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. So, Assyria is taken care of. Now, we're ready for chapter 38. Now, isn't it wonderful? The enemy's been put down. Everything is great. Isn't this... Oh, my, but Hezekiah gets sick, and he's about to die. And Isaiah says, put your house in order, you're going to die. And Hezekiah dared to pray and say, Lord, I've been faithful to you. How, you know, how can you do this? And Isaiah speaks for God and says, God is telling you you're going to have an extra 15 years. He likes what you've said. You're going to get an extra 15 years, and then you get a long writing by Hezekiah here in 38. Now we're up to 39. We've taken care of Assyria. Now the neighbors come. Babylonia shows up. And, but Hezekiah's feeling really good, right? He's been set free from Assyria. God's given him an extra 15 years. Some Babylonian envoys show up, and he says, Life is great. Let me show you around. And he shows them everything he has. No state secrets. Let me just openly show you how great it is. Big mistake. A lot of pride going on. Shouldn't have done it. Isaiah comes back, and he prophesies again. And he says, you know, the Babylonians are going to carry off everything that you showed to them. So you've got four chapters of history, right? It's bad the Assyrians are coming. Oh, it's okay. It's bad at the end. The Babylonians coming, and it's all. And then... It's almost as if the book of Isaiah is split in two, and the second half is filled with hope. Isaiah 40. And at verse 3 is the verse you recognize. A voice of one calling. In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. 
make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God, etc. And you're probably hearing the Messiah sung as you hear that verse. That's the connection between the Old Testament text and we get now up to John the Baptist who sees himself as the next step in what God is doing in history. It had been the practice of the Eastern monarchs to send heralds to announce that they're coming. That's what's going on in Isaiah 40. There's one coming, and John the Baptist says, I'm that herald too. There's one coming. Let's go for the good news now in as we anticipate the advent that we've been waiting for for so long. And so the Old Testament law and the prophets are now going to be summed up in John the Baptist by saying we need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And now we have John, this guy who's half Old Testament, one foot in the Old Testament, and half new. John standing both for judgment, as we saw there in Isaiah, and for hope that's going to come from here on. Okay, here we are up to John. We're into Matthew chapter 3 now. And the question is, what happens next? Well, you're familiar with the passage. John gets out there and starts preaching. But then he does something strange. It had to be strange to all those who were listening to him. He starts taking them and taking them down into the Jordan River and putting water on them, what we call baptizing them. And you say, wait a minute, John, where'd that come from? And what's that all about? And so you go back to the Old Testament and take another look and say, should we have seen this coming? Is there anything in the Old Testament that would have prepared us? Well, in the book of Leviticus, there were various ceremonial washings, so this is not the first time that water has been a part of the religious life. And when you get into the New Testament, there's that moment where Jesus and his disciples get severely criticized because they hadn't washed their hands properly, ceremonially, the way Leviticus taught them to. So there is some history. There's the cleansing of the leper, and that involved going to the priest and going through the purification. There's even something that's pretty obscure called a proselyte baptism. Suppose you as a Gentile had wanted to become a Jew back in that Old Testament era. It was possible, though rare, but if a Gentile was to become a Jew, part of it was to go through some kind of a washing ceremony, a baptism. So when John comes along, it's not totally a new idea, but it's pretty new. It's pretty drastic from what they were used to. Unless maybe they remembered when the Ten Commandments came in Exodus 20. In the previous chapter, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. So you have cleansing things going on at various places in the Old Testament. 
Isaiah had spoken in when he wrote about water cleansing them some way. He said in Isaiah 44, water will make you alive. So these hints are back there. But John's rite of baptism is essentially new. Maybe a little echo of the Old Testament, but significantly new. And it's a dramatic way of alerting people to their need and of warning them about the coming judgment. Repent. Judgment is coming. You need to be baptized. You need to go down in that river with me. Let me put water on you. That needs to happen as a washing ceremony. I baptize you with water for repentance. So somehow the baptism was intended to to produce repentance. It was a, a means of grace a means toward the end that the people would change. That seems to be at the heart of what John is saying. And repentance, what's it mean? Well, it means to turn or to return. You find that in the Old Testament. It means to change one's mind. That's the root idea. I change my thinking. It means to reorient one's whole life and personality. And so John is saying, we're going to have a ceremony here But it's not just the putting of water upon you. It's a recognition in a public way that you're going to turn from going this way and you're going to start turning this way. You're going to be a new person. Well, that's not so far from what we mean by baptism today, is it? You must see your sin and then you can repent. John Calvin said, Repentance is preached in the name of Christ when men hear that all their thoughts, all their inclinations, all their efforts are corrupt. John is trying to get their attention in a dramatic way and say, it's not all right the way things are happening. Change has to come. He talks about wrath in verse 7. He talks about a fire in verse 10. And even as I say these things, you have to think, wow, this is not the way we talk in the United States in the 21st century. This is not where most people are today. For the most part in our culture, we're indifferent to sin. We're unaware of judgment, and therefore there's no repentance. So, The message tonight is we should prepare for the coming of Christ by repenting. That's the heart of what John said. But he had a second observation. Once you have repented, or as you are repenting, you need to produce fruit at verse 8 produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance certainly ought to have fruit coming along with it. They go together. Why was the message so strong? What what was happening here? Well, we get a clue at verse 9. 
he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Then he has this. Do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Oh, a whole lot of the folks who were listening to John on those days were folks who were very confident about their position religiously. They could look back 2,000 years to Abraham and they could know that everything was fine. Why is he talking this stuff about repentance? Well, as I've read a bit about this, particularly this idea of we have Abraham as our father. You know, just as in this season in American Christianity, in addition to the Bible stuff, you get all these other stories that sort of come around the edge, and people can't always distinguish which are the Bible things and which are just the folklore things that come along. The same was true then. I found out that for Jewish folks, some of the the literature of the day didn't just say what the scriptures said about Abraham, but they pictured Abraham as sitting by the gate of hell for the purpose of delivering Jewish people, setting, making sure they did not enter hell. That there were ships out there on the sea that were somehow preserved through the merit of Abraham. When rain came, it descended due to the merit of Abraham. That sin of the golden calf back in Moses' day was forgiven because of the merit of Abraham. If they listen to the stories like that, what I would call fantastic stories, it's no wonder that they were saying, well, we have Abraham as our father. Everything is just fine. Why are you bothering us? And he says, don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Out of the stones. Huh. Oh, they had confidence that they were okay with God. But John evidently does not bring, believe that a lot of his audience really was repentant and really was okay with God. Apparently, they don't think judgment can touch them because of their relationship to Abraham. But John's approach is that if they really want him to baptize them, then they need to be aware of the judgment that's coming, and they need to change their lives so that they're actually carrying out the will of God, and they're not just relying on what Abraham supposedly did 2,000 years earlier. So the stress in the passage is on the coming judgment. During Advent, usually we just focus on the birth of the child. But this text suggests we should focus more broadly. That Christians may stand very much in a similar situation to where some of those religious leaders of Judaism stood. We may say, oh, we're the people of God. Hey, we're here. We're part of the assembly. We're members of our churches. We're in good standing. We have no reason to concern ourselves about judgment. John's warning then comes to us, as well as to those who first heard him. 
And he says to us, truly to be the people of God is to bring forth the fruit that shows we intend to be obedient. So, Advent, yeah. Preparation for the coming of the Messiah, yeah, that's what this is all about. And John's framework for it is repenting and bearing fruit. His proclamation comes to a conclusion by pointing beyond himself to a greater one who is coming. At verses 11 and 12, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John echoes Isaiah. Isaiah announced the coming, the advent of the Messiah. John does the same thing. And he lets us know the Messiah is coming and is living on earth as we know happened. And in these last days, from John right on through to the end, God's word announces that Christ is coming again. So when we talk about Advent this season, we don't just talk about the birth. We look beyond the birth, don't we? That's 2,000 years ago. We recognize that Christ needs to come to us individually, not just to an assembly. At the individual point is when each of us becomes a follower of Jesus. He needs to come at the point where our physical lives end. That's a coming as well, isn't it? And then finally, he'll come publicly. And John says he'll come in judgment and in mercy at the end of the age. So the call tonight as we join Christians around the world who have read these passages this day, the call is to prepare for his coming. And as we do so, God is calling us to a life of repentance and a life of fruitfulness while we wait for that glorious, visible return of our Lord Jesus Christ.